0: I'm Kim Cutable, an author, producer, and entrepreneur. Voice Lessons is a podcast about what, why, and how women create, and the way that they lead. In the United States, you can buy a gun at a garage sale. In fact, the number of guns owned by Americans outnumbers people. That might not worry you, but did you know that the overall death rate for women in the United States from guns is 90% higher than in any other high-income country, and 91% higher for our children aged newborn to 14? Shannon Watts is a volunteer using those numbers to lead an army of mothers and others and create seismic change. I talked to her about her book, Fight Like a Mother, and the business of building a movement.
1: I'm Shannon Watts, and this is a lesson on doubling down.
0: Tell me what your earliest memory of being
1: creative is. I can remember being frustrated by wanting to be creative, wanting to draw, and wanting to be able to sing and investing a huge amount of time in those things, never really excelling at it. It's funny because I have kids who have gifts that I wish that I had had. <laughs> I have one daughter who is an amazing singer, I have a child who's an amazing artist. All things I wished that I could do, but I think because then I was an only child, you know, I had to be creative in ways to entertain myself. I was an only child too. So I wonder if that that sparks the leadership
0: bug because you do have to entertain yourself and you have to round up people to play with.
1: You have to do all those things and you have to be sort of an adult because you're outnumbered in your own home, right? So I, I, I know that my parents expected me to act more like them than to act more like a kid. So I want to talk about your
0: book, Fight Like a Mother. And I want to talk about how your movement began, what was... What was the moment that inspired it?
1: I had been in corporate communications most of my career. So gosh, I guess, you know, over 15 years. And then I took a five-year break because I was blending my family and my husband's family. And I had kids at that point really ranging in age from elementary to college together, the two of us did. And I thought, okay, I'll go back to work at the end of that five years And what happened really at the tail end of those five years was the Sandy Hook School shooting tragedy. I was folding laundry in my home in Indiana in the suburbs, and there was breaking news that there was an active shooter in Newtown, Connecticut, a place I had never heard of. And, you know, like everyone, I was devastated, but I very quickly became angry that this was happening in my country. And so I I decided I would get involved and start a Facebook page to talk to other women. And I don't know who I was talking to because I had 75 Facebook friends, but I decided I would talk to other women about how to get off the sidelines. And that conversation turned into the largest grassroots movement in the country. You ended your first full year with 80
0: local groups and 125,000 supporters. Right. And, that, right. and as of 2018, you have 761 local groups and 6 million supporters, which is insane and amazing to me. How, how did you deal with the growth of that? The, mm-hmm. with, I mean, that's such rapid, crazy growth.
1: Yeah. You know, immediately I started getting emails and calls from women who wanted to get involved and to get off the sidelines where they lived and just started organizing. I think it's a special skill for women to be able to multitask and to be able to just really focus on when it's going to benefit the safety of their children and their communities. And so that was really how we started and. The growth was exponential, and the more we started showing up in our red shirts and having wins in state houses, the more we had volunteers join us, and not just women or not just moms, we're really mothers and others now. We were growing quickly, and then what happened was unfortunately, the Parkland shooting tragedy. and I think that's mm-hmm. a moment in America when so many people wanted to get involved in twenty eighteen and we tripled in size as an organization and just have kept growing ever since. And we're actually larger now than than the NRA.
0: And you also raise more money
1: than the NRA. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we're not sure where the money the NRA has comes from. It's dark money and they don't have to reveal that. But, you know, we have over 375,000 donors now. And so that has enabled us to outspend the NRA in the last two election cycles hmm Movements are
0: startups in my mind. I mean, yes. you're really running a business. Moms Demand Action, which is the business, bases its policy platform on data-driven research. You say you're focused on one outcome, which was what will save the most lives. And can you talk about the three things that you focus on that you believe will save the most lives?
1: Yes. So the first is a background check on every gun sale. There is a loophole in this country that unlicensed gun sales, according to federal law, do not require a background check. And that is in part because when lawmakers made the background check law, which does require background checks on licensed gun sales, they never imagined there would be this vast online marketplace for guns. So guns are sold online, and then the in-person transfers do not require a background check, and also uh, gun shows do not require a background check. And and in some states, you can even buy uh, guns at garage sales, no questions asked. And that is the foundation of all gun safety in this country, to require a background check on every gun sale. The other piece of it is to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people, for example, domestic abusers. There's federal law that prohibits convicted domestic abusers of buying a gun, but it does not include dating partners or stalkers. And in fact, because women are getting married later in life, most domestic violence, domestic gun violence uh, is between dating partners. So we go into states and close that loophole until we can get a a Congress that will act. And then the other piece is, is something called the red flag law. And those have been passed now in 19 states it's a law that allows family and law enforcement to get a temporary restraining order to remove the guns from someone who is a danger to themselves or others. And mm-hmm. that's we've had a lot of support for those laws across the aisle, Republicans and Democrats alike.
0: I've been really focused myself on Ahmad Aubrey the last few days and mm. the stand your ground laws that have made it possible for, private citizens to be vigilantes. And I'm curious if those laws will come into focus for you guys at all. And if you know the statistics on on keeping people safe by focusing on repealing those.
1: Yes. So, I mean, we're still learning all the facts, but it sounds like one of the three DAs who the case was passed on to before arrests were made was somehow claiming that you know citizens arrest Laws, open carry laws, and even stand your ground laws made these two white men within their rights to pursue and shoot Ahmad Arbery. And you know these laws are rooted in racism, especially stand your ground. We know they disproportionately impact people of color, and too often they're used by by white people to shoot and kill and ask questions later. So we mm-hmm. fight. These laws, everywhere they come up, we work to roll them back where we can. As you can imagine, these laws come up every single year in different state legislatures, sometimes the same state legislature. So yes, that that is absolutely our goal. And we've had great success in stopping Stand Your Ground. Last year in Arkansas, for example, we stopped it twice with a Republican supermajority. But, you know, bigger picture, too much gun violence in this country impacts people of color particularly black men and boys and you really cannot talk about gun violence without talking about the systemic racism that causes it
0: yeah I think there is an argument you know black lives matter that movement is huge and important and all of the sort of the pushback that's come up against it you know all lives matter but I, I feel like some people would argue that, Attention wasn't paid to gun violence until white women, and this is controversial, became involved in this movement. I believe all people should be involved in the movement, but do you deal with any criticism on that, or do you just sort of take it in stride and keep moving?
1: Well, first of all, the criticism that that white women only got involved because they were scared that their kids weren't safe in their school is completely mm-hmm. fair, and it certainly applies to me. I mean you know, I was living in a bubble. I did not realize 100 Americans are shot and killed every day. And I was scared that my kids weren't safe in their school. And mm-hmm. I think it's incumbent on our organization to involve all white women, Republican and Democrat alike, to speak out and to get off the sidelines and to not just care about the school shootings and the mass shootings, which frankly are only about 1% of the gun violence in this country, but to care mm-hmm. about the the gun suicides and the gun homicides that happen in rural America and, and city centers. And that's what we've done. We have been very committed to diversity, equality, and inclusion efforts internally as an organization and externally. And it is incumbent upon us to continue to learn and to listen and to hold up the work that others have done for decades. You know, black women have been putting their literal bodies on street corners to stop bullets where they live and and really their work has been invisible for too long. And so it is on our organization to make sure that, that that's always a priority.
0: Thank you for that. In your book, you talk about using losses to fuel your motivation. Can you speak more about that?
1: Yeah, you don't get involved in social activism in this country not expecting to lose, or if you do, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I always say, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And incremental change has become sort of a a dirty word, this idea of something being incremental, that somehow, if it's not an overnight revolution, it's not worth doing. And, you know, if you spend any time do working on activism on the ground, you very quickly realize the system is not set up for an overnight revolution. Some of that is hmm. to stop progress? Sure. Some of it is because our system is set up to make sure that there's buy-in from everyone in America on major change. And you can argue whether that's good or bad, but it just is the way it is, at least for now. And so how do you create a revolution in our system? Well, you do it by showing up for years and years and years, like drips on a rock? And you do the heavy lifting, the unglamorous work of activism. And I think women in particular are cut out for that. You know, we don't give up when our our kids or our communities are at risk. And we've been on the front lines, you know, of activism in this country really since Prohibition, all the way up through the, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. It's almost always women who are willing to stay the course and they play the long game. And we lose a lot we win more than we lose but if we mm-hmm. if we gave up every time we lost we wouldn't have gotten this far and so you have to come to see failure as feedback it's not fatal it's just a stepping stone and you have to look at how much you won when you failed and then use that information to point you in the direction of winning and the example i give often is of arkansas you know we were very small i would meet with the same handful of lovely women year after year, but they didn't grow or evolve. And it's because I don't think people thought it was a good use of their time to get involved in this in Arkansas. And what happened was a guns on campus bill was put forward. It sailed through the state house. It was signed by the governor with the NRA lobbyist standing next to him. And it so outraged women and moms that we grew from about two local groups in the state to over two dozen almost overnight. And what they quickly did was to carve out an exemption so that guns would not be allowed in Razorback Stadium. And then the next year, two of our volunteers ran for office and won. One of them was a retired nurse who beat the guy that put the guns on campus bill forward by 12 points. And then last year, as I mentioned, we beat back Stand Your Ground. And afterward, lawmakers, Republican lawmakers, were interviewed and said that the NRA's agenda was too extreme for their state.
0: It's awesome. You've used facts and statistics to really push forward the agenda and to make change, was there a moment in the organization's growth where you trusted your gut over the facts? And if yes, what was it?
1: So I was watching TV in June of 2013, and I saw that Starbucks was no longer going to allow smoking outside their stores, 20 feet, Mm. regardless of state law. And we'd seen them allowing something called open carry, where you loosely bring a handgun you know, that someone can see, or you have an AR-15 strapped to your chest, and you you go into the store. And they were going to still allow that, because I called them and asked, and they said yes. So we decided, and I say we, but me and a handful of, of other volunteers decided we were going to start going after companies, too, because women, you know, we have a lot of spending power. We don't have a lot of political power, but we have a lot of spending power, and we embarked on this campaign and I can remember people really saying like, you're, you're going off course. This isn't the focus. Why would you go after companies? It's not, it's not going to impact gun violence. There's not, they're not shootings happening in these stores, but to me, it was about pulling the levers of power that were available to you. And it was also about sending a cultural signal that, that women and mothers would not stand this. And three months later, after we put pressure on them, the CEO, Howard Schultz, came out and said guns were no longer welcome inside their stores. And I just felt like that was an important win that really put us on the map, especially given that we weren't necessarily going to win in Congress. At that time, Barack Obama was president, but he had a Republican Senate and House. And and it was a way to to keep winning. And and so even though there were people who said, you know, this doesn't make sense, in my gut, I felt it did. You say that we don't have a lot of political power, but you
0: say that motherhood is a political asset. And I also know that lots of your volunteers have decided to run for office locally and and right on up. So what do you mean by that? And why do you think that women have been less likely to run for office?
1: Well, I think women are less likely to run for office because There's this. There seems to be something common among women where we worry that if we don't know enough, we can't just jump in. Mm -hmm. And I don't think men have that same gating factor. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Women feel like they have to cross all the Ts and dot all the I's and know everything and be perfect and not fail. And men just don't have that same concern about jumping in. You know, I say in, in, in my book, "Fight like a mother." If you don't use motherhood as a tool for you, it will be used against you. And I think Mm. that's true. I I think women have been looked down on and marginalized if their mothers as if they can't take on more in their career. And the average Mm. age to run right now for office is 47, you know, and there's no reason that women don't run right out of college. They, They could, they could make this a career, but I don't think that we're we're brought up that way, or at least my generation wasn't. And when I say we don't have political power, I'm referring to the fact that women only hold about 20% of the 500,000 elected positions in this country. Right. And you know they say if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. I think a good example of that is the Violence Against Women Act. It's been sitting right. on Mitch McConnell's desk. It passed the House. Uh, it hasn't been voted on by the Senate. And that's because it contains a provision the NRA doesn't want, which would make dating partners and stalkers prohibited purchasers. I think that if, if there were at least 50% of the senators were women, it would be a completely different story.
0: I think what's so interesting is you're not even saying that you want to take guns away from people. You're not trying to prevent them from their precious Second Amendment. What you're trying to do is make it responsibly enacted.
1: That's exactly right. This is just about restoring the responsibilities that go along with gun rights. We're not anti-Second Amendment. We're not anti-gun. Many of our volunteers are gun owners or their partners are gun owners. This is simply about replacing the responsibilities that the NRA has eroded for decades. And that means you can get a gun without a background check. That means domestic abusers have easy access to guns. It means that, you know, people are stockpiling guns and creating arsenals and ammunition to take on the government because they have been erroneously convinced, you know, of conspiracy theories. These things are, these, these are not healthy societal behaviors. Do you think that women lead differently? Oh yes, I, I had a conversation actually with Amy Senator Amy Klobuchar yesterday, and she was saying, you know, the reality is that that women work together better in the Senate. They get more accomplished. They work on bills together more. And she sees that in Congress as well, uh, in the House. So I, I do think that whether you're a business leader or an uh, an elected official, women they're better at working together. They get more done. They're good at multitasking. I have spent so much time in state houses in the last almost eight years, and I can tell you that these people, and 80% of them are men, are not rocket scientists. If you are (laughs) kind and considerate and compassionate and engaged and just want to help people, you are more than qualified to be an elected official.
0: I loved what you talked about when you were getting the Rhode Island Families Act brought in that Governor Raimondo set up uh, places for women to nurse and places where kids to play because a, a lot of times you have to go in and you have to sit for a long time. You talk about staying put as a seismic act, which I thought was really beautiful, and that women go in and they knit and they breastfeed. And we've had this come up in conversations a number of times where women breastfeeding becomes an act of anarchy in some way. Would you have been able to do the work you have done without women in leadership?
1: Oh my gosh. No. I, I started this organization with perfect strangers who reached out to me online or found, you know, you know how type A women are. They like found my phone number and my email. And, <laughs> and you, know, had them like and you call them your soul sisters too, which I love, which I yeah, love. Yeah, they're absolutely my soul sisters. I mean, these are, these are women who have lifted me up now for almost eight years. And certainly people have come and gone inside the organization, but they always knew there was a, a common goal that we shared, which was to help and save other people. I am just so amazed by how organized women are and how industrious they are and how entrepreneurial and creative and innovative. I mean, the ideas they've come up with, uh, you know, have been just spectacular over the last eight years. And it's, it's why we are where we are. And my husband once said to me, you know, Shannon even if i found out i had a horrible illness i would not spend as much time trying to cure it as you are working on something you've never even been impacted by and i you know i think there's truth to that which is you know when women get together they're very effective especially if the safety of their kids and communities are on the line
0: this brings me to this question that more of the personal element of leading this movement your husband does he support you in this work and and your family and how how do you how do you have that conversation if you're a woman who wants to be at the front lines of activism but your partner believes like why would you do this why would you risk our safety in this way
1: <laughs> yeah i mean look we certainly have had those conversations where he's been concerned about my safety the safety of our family as you can imagine i get a lot of threats of death and sexual violence i have to travel with security i have to use an alias but at the same time i couldn't have continued to do this work if his concerns or the concerns of my kids were so big that that you know it was a problem and mm-hmm. while he has pointed out from time to time you know things that are happening that he has worries about He is incredibly proud of of the work that I do. And look, I'm a full-time volunteer. You know, I never went back to work after that five-year break. And he supports our entire family. And so he plays the the role of hero in our family because without him, I wouldn't be able to do this. And I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful for that.
0: How do you deal with those threats of violence?
1: I decided very early on that I would just let those threats be background noise. You know, I had a very quickly, as soon as I started this Facebook page, I started getting threats, whether it was on the phone or people driving by my home or sending me letters in the mail. And so I had to decide, okay, am I going to, am I going to back down or am I going to double down? And I decided Mm. the latter. I decided that I was not going to be silenced or threatened. If I lost my kids, I had nothing left to lose. And it really has become like white noise. I simply do not care. I don't think that most of the threats are valid. I I don't think that it's anything more than anonymous men who dislike women (laughs) are, you know, maybe in their basements Mm -hmm. uh, communicating with me. And I just, I don't care. Now, it's not just me, right? We have people who are open caring who show up at Moms to Man Action events across the country. And certainly are trying to intimidate and silence other volunteers. So I'm very grateful for their courage as well. But, you know, we just, we simply cannot go back to standing on the sidelines and and we're winning and we shouldn't. And I think that in any social issue, when the power of the other side begins to wane, you sometimes see this kind of backlash. And unfortunately, in our case, it's, it's backlash by people who are armed.
0: Do you have a spiritual practice that helps you through?
1: I do. I am Buddhist. I was I was raised by a very devout Catholic and just came to Buddhism late in life. Uh, you know, when I was around forty, and you know, my husband and I are both meditators. And that's I would say if you, if you ask me one thing I miss about the life I had before two thousand twelve. It's you know I, I spent a lot of time studying Buddhism and and spirituality, and I look forward to the day I have a little more time to do that again.
0: What would you say to the woman who has a big vision for change in the world but is overwhelmed by the idea of what to do next?
1: I think when you are passionate about something, and I'm still not quite sure why I'm passionate about this issue <laughs> because <laughs> I've never been impacted by it. And yet I live, eat, and breathe it every day from the moment I wake up till the moment I go to bed. and And that has not waned in eight years, which I find really interesting. But, if you are passionate about something, I, I would just say you have been impacted, though, because it's a society and a culture
0: that puts fear into women. I think, you know, we think just yeah. because we haven't experienced something firsthand, but we have. We yeah. are, we are. It's, it's, it's kind of a residue that lives among us. The fear.
1: I can remember. I lived in Texas in the nineties. I think it was very early nineties when the Lubies mass shooting happened. I don't know if you remember that. It was a restaurant yeah. in um, Texas. And I can just remember being so devastated. And I think I cried all day. Now, why that impacted me so much as a, you know, kid in my early 20s. And and then again, when Columbine happened and when the Gabby Gifford shooting, and I just remember paying such attention to those. And, and for whatever reason, <clears throat> it, it impacted me in a way that I finally felt I had to get involved. And, and that passion has never for a moment waned. I've never had second thoughts or I've never thought, okay, I've done what I came here to do. I'm ready to like do something else. But mm-hmm. but my point being, if you're passionate about something, you will be good at it and you will find a way to bring your time and your talents. It, it doesn't have to be starting a national organization, right? It can be, right. there are many different ways to get involved in different things. But if you do want to start an organization, if it's in your neighborhood, your community, in your state, in the country, whatever, I think the principles that I lay out in Fight Like a Mother, which all the proceeds go to gun violence prevention organizations, and it just came out in paperback. But I I think that's a good starting point. I really meant for it to be a manual to say, here's how I did this, and maybe how you could do it too.
0: Yeah, I wish you could see my copy with all my sticky notes in it. I asked you to complete the sentence. My wish for every other woman is
1: that you would run for office. I, I really think that there is a moral imperative in this country right now, especially, that every woman is looking at how they can take on a leadership role in their community. And look, I don't care if it's coroner or sheriff or school board, city council, state house, whatever. Think about running for office. Think about it seriously. If you decide you can't, for whatever reason, then then help other women run for office. But until there is a more equal representation at all levels of elected office, we are going to continue to get the short end of the stick in the country.
0: You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. So how visible are you? Take the quiz and find out. www.visibilityquiz.com Who are you hiding from? Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. You can join our community at Facebook forward slash voice lessons podcast to speak with me live after every episode is posted. And if you have a question or comment or want to suggest a guest, you can do it there. Or if you're on Instagram, tag us at voice lessons podcast and use the hashtag lessonup. for other inspiration updates and show notes. Subscribe at voice lessons